0: Welcome to Carry the Fire, a podcast where we explore the big questions of life through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm your host, Dustin Kensru, and my hope is that through these conversations with people of diverse and divergent backgrounds and beliefs, we can glimpse the world anew through each other's unique perspectives.
1: A couple of years on, living with Muslims, living among Muslims, I I had headed out to change them. I had headed out to effectively destroy them. I wanted to live in a world Mm. where there were no Muslims, just like my soldier friends, many wanted to live in a world where there were no Muslims. When I started realizing that I too had been weaponized, operationalized into the war on terror, uh, everything started to change.
0: Hey, everybody. Today on the pod, we are joined by Jeremy Courtney. Jeremy is the founder and CEO of Preemptive Love, a global organization providing relief, jobs and community to end war. For the past 15 years, Jeremy has served families on the front lines of the world's biggest crises and he lives with his family in Iraq. In our conversation, Jeremy expounds on the ways that we don't value all lives equally, we explore connections between ISIS and white nationalism, and the faiths that underlie and animate those groups. And Jeremy encourages us to leave room in our bags, so to speak, for the good, true, and beautiful things that other people are holding out to us. Let's dive in. Cool, man. Thanks for uh, taking the time. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So uh, we talk about the good, the true, and the beautiful on the show, but I'd like to start off kind of getting under and around and through all those by asking uh, what would cause you to feel a deep sense of wonder when you were a kid?
1: As a kid? um, Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Give me more than one thing, too. Yeah. I mean, I haven't tapped back into some childhood memories in a while. Deep sense of wonder, um, I mean, definitely there were times watching Michael Jordan play basketball that I tapped mm-hmm. into some deep sense of wonder. I mean, just watching this guy fly through the air and create art in the sky was was pretty amazing. <laughs> and then to like leave the TV, grab the basketball on the way out the back door, we lived uh, beside a park so to run out the back gate straight onto the basketball court and try and emulate those moves and try and emulate those game winning shots and stuff like that and to (laughs) obviously never be able to attain that level of magic that level of wonder uh for myself in many ways it only serves to just reinforce the the gap between someone so amazing someone living at you know the top of their their art and their craft so there, there was something very otherworldly as a child uh, watching jordan and then going out and trying to emulate that
0: that's cool i think you might be the second person that specifically mentioned that which is which is cool hmm. <laughs> um that's fine i mean i'm i was not like so sp- sporty when i was a kid but i definitely remember watching like during that time and it being pretty pretty special that's cool yeah so maybe if you, would you, if you wouldn't if mind giving uh listeners like a little bit of uh a background on what's going on with you what you're doing over uh in iraq i feel like it'll kind of ground a lot of the other stuff we're talking about
1: yeah so i i moved to iraq the country of iraq with my family shortly after september 11th um There's there's a lot of ground that I'll kind of skip over here that I cover more fully in uh, In other places in my book love anyway, but but suffice it to say I ended up landing in Iraq in the middle of the Iraq war We had a one-year-old little girl with us um, and my wife Jessica quickly got pregnant with our second child Micah so within within a year we've got two babies in Iraq and um, we're trying to figure out what we can do to play a role in the humanitarian crisis that is war. And uh, Iraq was really at the height of its civil war. At that time, things were, were really coming off the rails. It was a pretty dangerous time in a lot of the country. And uh, that's when we moved in to try and see what we could do to, to make a difference. We ended up starting an organization called Preemptive Love. And we've now, um, we've been in Iraq for 14 years and we've grown the work from Iraq into a number of other places, Syria. Um, we're in Lebanon right now, uh, as I talked to you, we're just a couple weeks out after the massive explosion in Beirut that that um, really grabbed the world's attention and huh. set the country back uh, in a lot of very profound ways. Uh, we're in Mexico, Venezuela, one of the biggest refugee crises in the world right now that, that gets very little attention. So. Iraq is still our home, but we've been able to grow our work outside of Iraq, really into uh, more of a global organization.
0: Do you stay there at this point, just because you've kind of put roots so deep, or are you kind of needed on the the ground in there in Iraq uh, because there's so much work that you're still doing there?
1: Yeah, it, it's because it's our home, um, not because yeah. not because we're needed here. Uh, the Iraqi team. Here really leads the work, just like the Syrian team leads the work, mm. like the Lebanese team leads the work. Um, we we've worked to build an organization that that has local leadership and is led by local expertise and local cultural and linguistic and religious and political know-how. Um, this definitely isn't about uh, us being the heroes of the story in every case, everywhere we go. It's it's always the people who already live there uh, who. Who really are pushing things forward, and we we do what we can to to connect us, you know, to to connect the global community, to connect resources, sometimes the people who have them to the people who need them more, and uh, so we we often play more of a facilitation and a communication role, um, but but the locals are really in the lead, making the decisions.
0: Yeah. So talk about that a little bit, um, because I I know. Um, just you know a bit about uh, i think you've talked about your ideas of like what you kind of went to do and uh, shifted some like you you grew up uh in the church with kind of like a mission mindset that uh, a lot of us who grew up in the church kind of picked up and uh, i feel like you came to associate some of the that way of thinking with um maybe a softer form of empire over time uh and uh, maybe uh, none less destructive though softer looking um but how has that um shifted for you and how has that impacted the way that you do things in trying to create aid locally like you've been talking about
1: Yeah, so i grew up in a very fundamentalist uh environment um where like any fish in its fishbowl, I, I didn't know that it was weird. Uh-huh. It was just the water I swam in. And it wasn't until... I mean, I guess going away to college started exposing me to some things. Going away to grad school started exposing me to some things. But it probably wasn't until we moved overseas altogether that the, the lid really blew off the whole worldview for me. And I started to have profound... Uh-huh dissonance in my life Um, right after 9-11 I don't know where you grew up or where you were at that time I was in Texas and uh, you know from for me and at that time I was in grad school 9-11 terror attacks on our country and it felt like the whole country just divided into a bit of a us versus them mentality Mm -hmm. and A lot of my neighbors, a lot of the people I was in church with, family, it was like, we got to go get those Muslims. We got to bomb them back to the Stone Age. Um, Stuff like that was a a pretty normal way of talking. So it felt like there was just one or two ways to be good, to be a good person in that environment. Mm -hmm. Um, You were a good person if you grabbed your gun and enlisted in military type service and headed out to war. That was one way to be a good patriot and and serve the cause, save the country. Uh, That wasn't really my style, I guess. Uh, My dad wasn't in the military, but my grandfather and my uncles were. So we had a little bit of it in our family, but but it had kind of skipped a generation. And so I I wasn't immediately proximate to the the military impulse. Mm -hmm. My dad was a pastor. my my grandfather had ultimately become a pastor as well so my inclination wasn't to grab my gun and go off to war it was to grab my bible and go off to war Mm -hmm. and i i thought i was very different Um, i would have never said i was going off to war at that time i i actually thought i was headed in a very opposite direction from the soldiers but a couple of years on living with muslims living among muslims I, I had headed out to change them. I had headed out to effectively destroy them. I wanted to live in a world mm-hmm. where there were no Muslims, just like my soldier friends, many wanted to live in a world where there were no Muslims. Their tool of choice were tanks and guns. My tool of choice was the Bible, but the outcome was generally the same. We wanted to create American, mm-hmm. America loving Christians, both of us. And when, when that started dawning on me, when I started realizing that I, too, had been weaponized, operationalized into the war on terror, uh, everything started to change, kind of, kind of piece by piece. And the, the entire worldview, the entire religious construct, it, it all just started to, to fall apart for me slowly. Hmm.
0: Huh. So you start grappling with that. Um, does that, like, is that realization part of how you start actually doing the nuts and bolts of your organization on the ground and, and making things so that they're locally sustainable and kind of separated from the organization almost by a, by a, a certain degree?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's whether you look at it from a missionary standpoint or uh, an aid standpoint, there's there's a phrase that both industries are, are kind of aware of. And it's this idea of a white savior um, where, uh-huh. where the, the white man, the colonist, the colonizer comes in from the outside to teach you poor, pitiful humans what it means to be saved and how we uh-huh. we can save you or we can lead you to salvation. And whether you do that with money and food and jobs or whether you do that with bible and teaching and churches the both of those kind of industries so to speak can really be infected. They have a legacy of being led by white saviorism. And so when when I started waking up to the let's just call it toxicity to use a a kind of common word today. The, the, the poison, the toxicity of that worldview that I so fully believed in, so fully embodied as a missionary, where I thought I had the truth. I was right. They were fundamentally wrong and I needed to eradicate them and their religion and woo them over to my side. Uh, Once once that fell away I I couldn't go back to it just because we wanted to make a pivot and get into the aid world. So we we, Mm -hmm. all of that initial stuff that I'm talking about, that missionary stuff, that took place in Turkey. That was the first place that we landed. So we moved to turkey right after september 11th and i had this profound awakening experience where all of that kind of conversionary approach eradicate the muslims approach it it died it fell away and when we moved to iraq it was about moving into a war environment it was about moving into humanitarian work it was about maybe atoning for our sins on some level still you know was like oh my gosh we've just done mm-hmm. a lot of damage um maybe if we go into this environment you know we can we can get a fresh take on it all yeah i i don't think we were going to go back into the same kind of white saviorism because the whole the whole model had just been blown up in our in our yeah. minds so we've made mistakes to be sure there was a, a residue of it or a legacy of it or a stank of it that kind of sticks around for a while. Mm. We made mistakes, but but we avoided being rooted in it, I think. What advice
0: would you give people in like who want to help, right? Who want to help in places that uh, have been war destroyed or there's famine or whatever. They want to help, but uh, they're worried that they are bringing this kind of uh, savior attitude um, is that have you seen anything kind of from your perspective that would be helpful to steer them away from that
1: mm-hmm. I mean at this point in world history i perhaps there was a time where this wasn't true that that that's probably even not accurate but but at this point in world history you can find local experts on the problems plaguing their neighbors in every country around the world there there's really mm-hmm. no country that you can go to that is so destitute and so troubled and so beset by violence or poverty or whatever it is that they do not already have their own local ecosystems of Organizations of subject matter experts of university scholars researchers Activists politicians who care more deeply about their people and their future Than you could possibly care as an outsider so just because you're the one suddenly waking up to a thing or because you're the one who's taken a special interest, or gone through a course, or studied something in college, and and you feel it deeply, it doesn't mean your need to help them because it satiates something in yourself should displace or supersede their rights and agency to mm-hmm. to to have you know real control. To help their own people, to stand in the lead, to to give advice, to give answers, to have the power to make decisions. So, local leadership, proximity, depth of knowledge, is is something that I think at its best is found locally, not something we import from abroad or externally.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Something that I felt like was really refreshing was seeing, um, I was watching the, uh, like the half-hour doc that you guys made for uh, the Love Anyway um, kind of campaign and you talk about uh, how 9-11 took 3,000 lives and then the Iraq War, which... Uh, is not really connected, though we kind of connected it in the minds of, uh, Americans, uh, took some half million lives or more. Uh, and I feel like a lot of people don't really have any perspective on that. Or maybe don't know about it, have, have not really took the time to think about it. Um, what kind of reactions do you get? Do you get people kind of pushing back on that or, 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 no? being surprised, um, I don't know, have you dealt with that a lot?
1: Yeah, there, so we toured behind that documentary for all of last mm-hmm. fall, and I, I was on the road nonstop for a couple of months. We did 60 some dates across the country, north to south, east to west, and it was, it was an amazing time to be in venues large and small where we'd screen the film and then we'd have a talk back session everywhere we went and you know honestly the 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 out loud reception was always very good um -hmm. almost always very good we only had a few environments where a couple of people strongly pushed back and took exception to our critique of the iraq war or or critique of american foreign policy or later on in the documentary kind of critique of america's History and legacy of institutionalized yeah. racism, things like that uh, generally, I would say that the audience that selected to be a part of these events and selected to come and go deeper with us were apparently already of a, an ilk or an orientation that they were they were primed for this conversation. There were only some environments mm-hmm. where where we got pretty significant pushback against that. I appreciated the pushback because it was it was a true. Authentic representation of the world view of the people who are offering it up. They they genuinely believe there is no place to criticize American foreign policy or there's no place to criticize the American military um, or they believe that somehow Muslims truly are this nefarious one billion person force that is a threat to our world so i appreciated that we were able to create an environment where they would say the truth about what they believe because at least at least we could then have a a robust conversation about whether that was predicated on right assumptions or whether it was just bigotry Uh um and that that was really the the point of the tour and the point of the documentary in a lot of ways is to to facilitate those kinds of conversations.
0: Yeah, I I don't know I don't know what it is if it's something just in the human psyche or if it's something uniquely american that it's so hard to connect the reality of massive death and suffering that is outside of your, your little thing, you know, like, I mean, well, we obviously live in a, a, a large country in the States. Yep. It's a lot of people, but we have this idea of this is our tribe. Right. And so if our people are killed, that is unacceptable. And then that then justifies any amount of, of death or suffering somewhere else. Um, I feel like the the amount that we've swallowed that, um, you know, especially in I think in the church, in the conservative church, is is really disturbing. Um because it, it I think it gets down to like there's a different active theology going on inside of us at times than we would, you know, preach on
1: a Sunday morning. And I mean this is at the core of it what the statement Black Lives Matter is really attempting to press into our into the forefront of our collective conversation is some lives clearly by lived experience are valued less hmm. than others and so clearly there are there are many many institutions structures communities for whom it apparently takes Five black people To equal the relative worth of one White woman, you know Like that uh-huh. That's that's what we're trying to tell you We're not saying white lives don't matter We're saying, why don't black lives matter Enough to y'all That they are Apprised equally, valued equally as As you value your own life As you value your own Sister, neighbor, whatever and I think you can certainly through the war on terror years, through the Iraq war years, you can you can put Arabs or Muslims in general in that category. There, there was definitely there um, is probably yeah. still today a, a rhetoric and a worldview that says, you know, it takes something like 10, 50, 100 Arab lives Muslim lives to add up to one American soldier, you know, or one American civilian mm-hmm. killed by terrorism. And I think that's, that's what that sequence in the documentary is meant to elucidate a little bit.
0: You're right. There is an element, not just of, uh, of like a nationalistic uh, tribalism, but also there's layers of racism and other kind of bigotry that's woven into there because you would if if there was a bomb in you know uh britain or germany uh, we would equate that differently based on you know uh, there were at least like i mean those places are fairly diverse at this point too but you'd still have this idea of like oh my gosh all of those those white people were killed there Like it just, they're, you know, they're, they're Western. They're kind of part of our, our team, you know, and, uh, and so those lives matter more and it's, uh, it's rough.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could, we, we, we felt it very acutely during the, the height of the ISIS years in Iraq when there were these, you know, kind of lone wolf attacks in France or the U S and you would see. You would see a handful of people die which was horrible and should never have happened and was morally reprehensible and wrong but on the same exact day you'd see ten times that many people die in a single attack from American airstrikes or Russian airstrikes in Syria or in Iraq and those wouldn't get any coverage at all and so it really is never as simple as all life is equal that you are you're really right uh-huh. that there's there is a i mean yes all life is fundamentally equal but but we don't we don't live as though that's true we don't orient our lives and our tweets and our outrage as though that's true we we definitely overweight it toward certain skin tones certain nationalities certain beloved cities like paris more than others
0: uh-huh. Yeah, let's talk about isis a bit uh in that the documentary you start to uh is i was glad you kind of went there but as i as i was watching the beginning i was like i was making those connections and then you you brought them out later i was like oh man he's going there this is good um but you're you're watching isis uh on the ground there and then you're seeing oh no you you came back. Uh, I can't remember why you came out. You flew back and it was the morning of the Charlottesville rally, right?
1: Yeah. So I, we were in the height of the the anti-ISIS campaign where ISIS controls Mosul. And we've been embedded with the Iraqi military doing humanitarian work street by street. So the Iraqi military would free one street from ISIS, push ISIS deeper into the city. And then that whole street of civilians would become free and they will have been starved out and need a medical care food water whatever so we would be on one street delivering emergency aid while the military is bombing and shooting one street over and isis is shooting at us and shooting at the military all at the same time i i needed to leave that war theater leave home in iraq and go to an event in the united states so i got on a plane touched down in the south and went to the hotel and started immediately seeing news coverage on CNN of the Unite the Right rallies. This was this was the, the what, Friday or Saturday night where they were doing tiki torches, marching through the streets, you will not uh-huh. replace us, you will not replace us. And, you know, by, by the next day it was, okay, that was Friday night. Then on Saturday, um, all the counter protesters came out the car drove through the masses, killed Heather Heyer, injured some other people, and it, I mean, watching those guys marching down the street, tiki torches, um, screaming about a return to the past, it, it looks so similar to the tactics of, of ISIS marauding their way down the highway, uh, waving guns, screaming about a return to the past. Um, in both cases both groups want to go back to a time that felt more comfortable for them where they had more dominance more control more control over women more control over gay people more control over you know whatever Um, their theology was predominant and they felt like they were able to better lock out the secular liberalizing forces of, of the world and when you've lived terrorism, when you've looked terrorism in the eye one way or the other, you 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 can see it in other places. You can start to see patterns. You can start to see similarities. And um, it, I don't know. It, it, it has not... To look at white power, white nationalism, white supremacy in the United States and to call it terrorism or terroristic has just felt very natural to us for for a long time because it it's just the inverse or mirror image of what it has looked like in the hands of al-qaeda or isis on on this side of the world
0: yeah and i think it's helpful to see those connections especially as um i think a lot of people end up viewing islam as or as, as certain kinds of like terrorism and authoritarian regimes as some sort of determined outcome from uh, an Islamic worldview, uh, which is totally false, but uh, you can see these same tendencies coming out from a supposed Christian uh, worldview uh, and realize that the problem is not the religious, Issue at all. It's it's uh, it's something else. Um, in in your interactions with these things, what what do you feel like that common thread is?
1: I would I would say it maybe slightly differently. Um, okay. I wouldn't deny for Islam or for Christianity or for Hinduism, for that matter, that religion is the problem. I think religion is part of the problem. Theology is part of the problem. The the problem for the rest of us, perhaps, and I guess for the extremist group themselves, is when we accept the premise that Christianity is just one thing or Islam is just one thing. I I approach it Mm. as though There is no such thing as Islam. There is no such thing as Christianity. There are many Christianities. There are many Islams. And they are all, I recognize this will be controversial, but they are all valid. Um, They are all interpretations, understandings, and applications of something that a group of people has agreed upon and says, this is Christianity to us. This hmm. is Islam to us. Denying that white supremacists are real Christians is futile. Denying that ISIS are real Muslims is futile. They, they are people who have somehow laid hold of a time, a place, a politic, a... Scripture a tradition A culture and Have said this matters to us We will organize Mm -hmm. around this and we will live and die for this I think it's better to take them at face value whether they be the ku klux klan or whether they be isis. I think it's better to say That is a legitimate Legitimate is a problematic word because it can kind of mean a couple of different things, but But I recognize that as a form and expression of Christianity. Um, Now, what is it about your kind of belief that would cause you to treat gay people this way? That would cause you to treat trans people this way? That would cause you to treat women this way? That would cause you to treat other ethnicities or religions or races this way? I think it's better to accept that there are real scriptures and real traditions that can give rise to that kind Mm -hmm. of expression. I think that's more helpful than it is to just go, oh, those people aren't real. They aren't real Christians. They aren't real Muslims. Yeah. The, the, The desire to excise those people and say they don't represent me therefore they don't implicate me and my religion couldn't possibly have any of that inside of it mm. is mm-hmm. is inherently problematic i believe it kicks the can down the road rather than dealing yeah. with thousand year old worldviews that are going to keep bubbling up into violence that hurts other people
0: yeah that's really helpful i like that uh distinction, because where I was trying to go with it is this idea, basically, I guess kind of trying to get at what you're saying, but it's it's more uh, succinct to say hey, you've got to break it up and not look at it as these monolithic things, because they're just not actually functioning that way at all. Um, and I think that's that's probably the best way to get that across to say like, yes, there are people who are Muslims who believe this way and then act this way but and i I think i guess the big the big issue is uh, especially in times like around 9 11 or whatever it becomes this idea that all muslims are this very like terrible version of it um and it's very dehumanizing to to so many people but i i think you're right especially for christians trying to push back on on white supremacy, on things like that, and, and and not grappling with the very real ways that uh, white supremacy in the States has specifically been born out of interpretations of Christian, Christian scripture. Uh, as much as you might dis- disagree with that, that, that's real and it has roots and it has to be reckoned with. I'd like to hear a little bit more on the way that your connection with um, people of other faith traditions has affected your own faith and practice, because you've come into contact with uh, a lot of Muslims, with the Asidi, I don't know how many other groups, but you've been in deep relationship with um, these people who at one point you would have had a bit of a more they are other, and, and, and now you've been in community with them and seen kind of from the inside and experienced life with them. Um, how's that affected your own faith and practice?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's changed everything for me, uh, starting with our very first Muslim neighbors in Turkey, when I, I came in kind of fists up, looking for a fight, um the the kindness the humility with which i was received kind of against all odds america was seen as as a pretty great aggressor in the region at that time americans were viewed with a lot of suspicion as soldiers cia operatives duplicitous lying missionaries which i was and and yet even in the midst of that uh, our neighbors welcomed us with kindness they they took their version of islam was so humble and kind and welcoming that they they took the risk of welcoming the threat into their own home in hopes of if we really were the bad guys believing that their love their kindness could change us and it did it really did and that that was really from day one so they were a significant part i mean the i I talk about this at depth in my book but i talked earlier briefly here about having a profound spiritual awakening that profound spiritual awakening in my mind and experience of it 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 was it all took place in my mind in my mind's eye as a prayer as a as a internal waking up experience that happened in a moment but Mm. but to try and divorce it from the real world hospitality and kindness of my muslim neighbors is is pointless I, i mean it was two years of tea and food and late night conversations and walks through the park and it was it was two months of all that 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 helped lay the groundwork for what became an instantaneous spiritual awakening for me. So mm-hmm. it all matters. It all it all ties together. By the time I moved to Iraq, we started getting introduced to a, a more broad array of both Christians and Muslims. Iraq has a Christian population uh, mm-hmm. that that goes back centuries. So I got to experience eventually more of a high church um, Set of Christian tradition that was very foreign to me as a as a so-called low church non-denominational or Baptist Protestant Uh, I got to Mm -hmm. experience a range of Islam from the Sufi mystics who engaged in everything from sword swallowing fire eating glass eating uh, kind of mystical experience, experiential kind of stuff, to Sunni Salafi fundamentalists, which are which are more of the ISIS, Al Qaeda kind of vein, to Shia uh, Shia faith, which which can tend to be maybe a little more emotional, expressive, um, maybe considerate and venerating of. Prophets and shrines and traditions of that sort. So I got I got exposed to a, a range of Islam. Now suddenly Islam wasn't just one thing for me. It was it was not only individuals, mm-hmm. but it was whole traditions and and various sects or streams of Islam as well. And I mean, I think ultimately, I mean, I don't know how to tie it all off in a bow and say therefore it made me this way, but. But just in general, I would say it humbled me. It, Mm -hmm. it, it made me more considerate, it made me kinder, it made me less arrogant and less interested in, in beating people over the head with, with my 20 year old superiority, you know, in the early days, I would have had no compunction about going into a 70 year old elder, like marching into a mosque and berating a 70-year-old Muslim elder with my, with my confidence that I knew everything about what was good and true and beautiful in the world. But, but over time, I, I couldn't live like that anymore. I, I started to sit with the 70-year-old elders and say, teach me, tell me, you've, you've lived through war, you've lived through famine, you've lived through genocide. I have something to learn from you.
0: Mm-hmm. I think we all end up having this idea that I I'd like that you you brought the good, the true, and beautiful and back in there, but this idea that like we have some sort of uh, monopoly on those things mm-hmm. in our different worldviews, and you end up shutting out things. Mm-hmm that are good or true or beautiful because they don't fit in there and it scares you. Mm -hmm. Like No, 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 that can't, that can't actually be good. And you, uh, you experience it enough finally to be like, all right, I gotta, I gotta make room for it. I, I've got to open up. Um, you talk about, uh, this idea of us (laughs) belonging to each other. Um, and, I just reread Brave New World. I don't know if anyone's ever talked to you about this before, but it they it, it's kind of this weird thing in Brave New World where they're talking about um they they have this condition. Have you read that before?
1: No, I actually literally just put it on my uh Audible account today to to get into.
0: Okay. Uh it's like yeah, it's a good audiobook. I just uh listened to it that way. Um there's this idea where uh they they they're kind of um brainwashed uh from a young age uh, with some different ideas. And one of them is, is everyone belongs to everybody else. Hmm. But the way that it ends up feeling in the book is, um, m- I was trying to think of like why it sounds different because it, it even when I was reading, it, I was like, that's kind of a beautiful idea. And then it doesn't actually manifest <laughs> yeah. in a beautiful way. Um, And I think the reason is it ends up feeling like in the book, um, it's like, especially tied to like sexuality. Like everyone has a right to everyone else's body in Mm. a sense. Um, it, it it takes away like, um, a sense of autonomy or privacy or I don't know self dignity in certain ways. And and it almost everyone belongs to everyone as, as property almost, Mm. which is not what you're, you're getting at. Um, I feel like, uh, the way that you use it is something closer to we should take charge of. uh I don't know what would be the like a maybe like stewardship of each other instead of ownership. Yeah, something. I, I don't know if you'd it, want to expand that idea a little more.
1: It, yeah, it's it's meant to touch upon this. What I think is an indisputable reality that we are connected to each other. That our well-being mm-hmm. is bound up in each other. That uh, yeah. There, there is a sense in which I can flourish without you to a degree, or I can flourish to a degree at your expense, but I cannot fully flourish in all the ways that are available to me unless you are also flourishing to a similar degree. Um, mm mm-hmm it's it's meant to dispense with the idea that life is zero sum and that there's only Uh so much to go around and if you take some then it's going to mean that it's not available to me so then i should take some before you get it the the connectedness to one another means when you get better i might get better as well if we do it right um, sexual exploitation where I lay claim over your body that's that's not doing it right that's that's actually a pretty tried and true uh, model we've seen that we've seen that one before we know what the end is of that so it, it's meant to say we're connected to each other it's meant to say at our best we will flourish in similar ways at a similar rate to a similar degree but that doesn't fit as nicely on a t-shirt
0: yeah, uh, it reminds me of a, a friend says. Uh, he says we're not responsible uh, for everyone else, but responsible to them, mm. which I I like a lot. Just in the sense that you can't control mm-hmm. outcomes, and and you can't take the burden of of trying to actually live that person's life and and whatever. But you you have responsibility to other people. Um, he talks about even with his kids, which I think is a really great way to think about that. Mm. Like you're not responsible. For, for your, your kids. kids, like you're, you, they have their own Agency. personal life, and yep. the, the, you have to it, it fl- that has to flourish. And if you think about it in the way of being responsible for them, it ends up being pretty toxic a lot of times. But be responsible to them is, is, um
1: you know, one of the ways that I I talk about this in my book. I, I was too kind of pot committed with the framework in my book when it started dawning on me that. Going forward, I probably want to talk about it differently, but in my book I start talking about the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. That's that's kind of the, the mm. thing that we're reaching for the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible and it, it started dawning on me that the the flaw in that model or the flaw in that rubric is that our hearts don't necessarily know the same thing as possible or our hearts aren't necessarily envisioning the same beauty Um, what my heart thinks is beautiful might actually be drastically different than what your heart thinks is beautiful. And, and arguably that's what we're talking about when we talk about ISIS, when we talk about white supremacy, we're talking about one group of people who envisions a more beautiful world if it could only be like this, but it comes at the Mm -hmm. great expense of another group of people who's saying, if you get your way, that will not be a beautiful world for us so so the very thing of like trying to paint a bullseye on the future and say the more beautiful world our hearts all agree on and know is is possible thats that's a bit flawed so the way i've started talking about it since i released my book is um i've been i've been playing more with language like the world where everyone and everything rises that's a really compelling idea to Uh me In this season is I I want everyone to flourish I want everyone to keep going up I want everyone to keep getting better in a kind of 360 fully orbed kind of way ideally those who have been at a great loss and who have been acted upon in especially heinous and evil ways We need to work to help them rise to give of our privilege to give of ourselves to give of our opportunity So that we can make up for lost time we can fight against the clock so that another generation isn't born into that environment, but But ultimately in the grand scheme of things I want everyone to keep improving. I want our I want our mental well-being and health to keep improving. Our our overall connectedness and spirituality to improve. Our wealth and money, uh, our our care for the planet. I want all of that to improve and rise together. So that that's been a, a kind of language motif that I've been playing with now more recently. The world where every one and everything rises.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. That that can't be um, that can't be weaponized quite as easily as uh, the beautiful world where there's only people that look like me or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) There's a moment in the documentary where uh, your friend Sadek says, um, if we have different beliefs, just opening our hearts will open our minds. I thought that was um, a great and kind of succinct way of getting at, I think, how our... I think especially in the west we we prize like our intellect our rationality and a lot of times it is more experiential things that are actually shifting Mm -hmm. our perspectives than some idea that's disconnected yeah i don't know i feel like that's that is almost key to a lot of what you're trying to do that the idea of preemptive love uh which i don't know if i had just had if i had made the connection when i first heard the name and then forgot about it but <laughs> i was watching it and you were talking about preemptive love as opposed to preemptive strike preemptive war i was like oh yeah that's great i, I totally <laughs> i'd either forgotten or never made that connection and um and it's really beautiful this idea of um flipping that on its head like rather than i'm going to attack you uh in case you might be wanting to attack me like flipping that over and be like i'm going to love you even though you might be wanting to attack me and that that encounter is going to change both of us um for the better um and uh, you share in there there's a beautiful moment where uh, Sadiq gives water to uh, one of the isis leaders who's been captured who who killed his friend um And uh, I was wondering if there's any other stories like that that have really stuck with you of seeing That kind of preemptive love. I even I mean even in your story of the way that the people of uh, Iraq welcomed you in like they're showing their own preemptive love there in a beautiful way. Do you have another story that? um, Would be helpful to hear
1: life in these environments post-war middle of war even in the middle of war, it's not necessarily like every single day is just incessant bombs and bullets, and there's no uh-huh. reprieve uh, like much of life there's there's highs and lows, there's big stories, there's everyday life the the big stories i mean we've we've told the big stories here and there, sodic um our team and our kidnap nearly kidnap story in the middle of the desert outside of Fallujah um the kind of major bombing stories there, there's a handful you know 10 15 stories that I tell mm-hmm. all over the world they're they're the kind of highlights you know but but most of life is not something you want to watch in a movie most of life is just mm-hmm. everyday boring encounters That I guess kind of let's go back to my other story before in the run up to my big spiritual awakening. There's just a lot of normal dinners and teas and walks in the park and subtle conversations and and subtle arguments and screaming arguments. But then later reconciliation, there's just there's 15 years of that stuff that I've got that has arguably made as much or more of a difference in the grand scheme of things than the highlight reel that you're gonna be sure to put in a documentary or a book or, yeah, or yeah. tell on a stage in front of 10,000 people. Um, so I don't know, I mean, I, I guess the easiest thing to say is kind of the highlight reels are out there. We put them in the 30-minute documentary called Love Anyway. I put them in my book. I've I've beat those stories. I've wrote those stories for, for all they're worth but just like your life just like the lives of anyone listening in the real change often comes in the the mundane it, it comes in the faithfulness mm-hmm. of the day to day it comes in the discipline of the day to day it comes in the the getting up and committing yourself to it all over again of the day to day and so i guess at this stage of my life and growth i'm a little i'm a little leery or wary of of just reaching for the sensational um, yeah, because I'm afraid that what that does is it makes all this work seem out of reach rather than normal. And our lived experience of it is that actually there there's a profound normalcy to making peace, to pursuing peace, to living life with people who are different than you and so very, very much like you. And I, I kind of want to highlight the normalcy of it all these days.
0: Yeah, that's super helpful. I like that. I wanted to ask, do you have any uh, consistent practices or habits that are helpful for you? I mean, it could be, could be anything, taking a walk or... I don't know, watching TV, at the the day. something that that you find is like, uh, I mean, it's like a, a helpful practice. In
1: some ways I feel like I probably could have answered this more clearly and confidently pre COVID. I feel like, uh, as we talk here, mm-hmm. we're what, six months into COVID and it's been, I mean, it's had a pretty profound impact on our life, on our rhythms, yeah. on what life looked like here in Iraq on, uh, on a lot of things our work around the world our team dynamics so i i don't know there's a part of me that can't get my head back very clearly to where we were before all this and i i i don't necessarily think i've developed some new range of of especially helpful habits Mm. in this era but um i mean broadly speaking i'll just say Playing guitar, grabbing my guitar for ten minutes, thirty minutes, noodling away, plucking away. It's it's a good play. It's a good way to to allow my brain to go somewhere else, and um, it Mm -hmm. it kind of frees up while while my fingers go through something that's kind of routine or perfunctory. I think it it starts to let my brain decompress a little bit and go to another place. I don't write as much as I used to. I don't write songs as much as I used to, for example, but. but just a very active playing and going through those kind of ritualistic rote motions i think is an important part of decompression for me mm. yeah
0: i used to <laughs> used to carry like my guitar everywhere like i would go, we when i was a kid we everyone would go skateboard and i sucked at skateboarding so i would skateboard but i would just bring my guitar and just play but uh, it's <laughs> always felt like a a bit of a uh security blanket or something it's uh. just, just not, it's nice to hold Yeah nice to play. Did you play um, did you
1: play on the skateboard same time? Uh
0: I would sometimes, yeah. <laughs> then I'd stop and you know That's awesome. sit and play a song. What are some of the ways that you regularly seek out or encounter or encounter beauty in your life? In some ways I guess where 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 are you looking where are
1: you looking for it? I'm looking for it everywhere. I'm looking for it anywhere. Yeah. I'm expecting it everywhere Hmm. Um, when when we set out from home whatever it's been now 17 years ago um, we were young dumb and broke and we couldn't take a lot with us we we packed you know two bags four bags whatever it was and moved overseas for good I mean, in theory, we knew that we could come back home, but we didn't have a return plane ticket. And it was the 9-11 world. It was the war on terror and Muslims were the bad guys and we were going to move into their neighborhood. We had an apocalyptic view of the world. And so in many ways, we expected to die out here. And even when we shed some of that, and moved into Iraq, which was a little bit more of a bona fide danger zone, um, we just expected that we would die out here. Uh, so there was there was something unintentionally profound about leaving home in that way, and because we took so little with us, so to speak um I started to find a metaphor once when some of my faith Elements started to get challenged and fall away. I started to look at all of life through that lens of like leaving home Encountering new things and taking as little baggage with you as possible. Once I had an empty bag or a semi empty bag to go back to a previous comment you made when someone wanted to hand me something good I could take it mm. when someone wanted to hand me something beautiful, I had room in my bag for it when someone wanted to hand me something true I had room in my worldview for that gift to come into my life as well so it, that has become the practice is to not keep my bag so full that I don't have room for what other people other experiences other cultures might offer me along the way so I I look for it everywhere I expect it everywhere but the only way I can really receive your good your beautiful your true is to to keep a little space in my bag to to keep Mm. to keep a little humility in my bag that that protects that space for the thing that you might want to hand me and might want me to experience with you.
0: That's nice. I'm sure this will be less profound, but I, I, I am curious now. Uh, so I, I'm seeing your your pillows behind you there. Um, I'm curious, after living in uh, the middle of a different culture for as long as you have, um, has it shifted your aesthetic uh, sensibilities for art and the way like a house looks or whatever like has that shifted internally for you or is it just kind of uh like I'm curious how deep those kind of roots go in people
1: yeah it's an interesting question yeah I, I definitely have uh, a appreciation and affinity for it I mean our house is I guess it would be a mistake to think that all of Iraq or all of Iraqi houses are designed to look like what you would call Iraqi houses, you know, like your your expectation yeah. that everything is, everyone's sitting on the floor, curly Q Arabic scripts and carpets everywhere. That's that's not necessarily the Iraq that we live in. Um, that's an old, maybe ancient Iraq, but that's not necessarily today's Iraq. So some of those traditional elements we have an appreciation for, and they're a part of our life. But similarly, a lot of our Iraqi friends have what you would call modern elements as well. But yeah, I mean, it it doesn't feel necessarily foreign it feels it feels very familiar and mm-hmm. and i i appreciate it i appreciate the art the music food language culture yeah it, it feels it feels like home when we travel abroad and we come back here we're we're coming home this is our home
0: yeah yeah cool all right man well thanks so much for taking the time uh it's great talking to you. Uh, my wife was really excited that we were doing this one. She she loves what you're doing. She loves hearing uh, your take on stuff and uh, has been, I do too, but she's been like bugging me to she's like, you got to get him on there. Like, all
1: right. Well, um, I'm so honored. She wanted, Thank she you for that. She wanted credit for that. <laughs> say, say hi to her for me and uh, grateful for the invitation. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so for people who are listening and want to know
1: more, then go to preemptivelove.com, or is it? Preemptivelove.org. And, um, .org. You can find your way to any number of things from preemptivelove.org. We're Preemptive Love on all the socials. Uh, if it's easier for you, the documentary lives at loveanyway.com, and uh, there that's the spelling on that's a lot more uh, known to everyone. So love anyway. .com and you can find your way to all that stuff as well. Loveanyway.com.
0: Cool. Yeah. So I uh, encourage everyone to check that out. There's a bunch of ways that um, you can be supporting um, people all over the world who are kind of running their own businesses that uh, Preemptive Love is kind of help them start up and uh, get off the ground. And there's a lot of really cool stuff that they're involved with. So check it out. And uh, thanks again.
1: Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Cheers.
0: If you have a moment today, it would help a ton if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Uh, Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at carrythefirepod. I want to thank my producer, Andy Lara, and all of our executive producers. Chris Reeves, Tony Panaro, Sam George, Reed Duchess, Thomas Fortcourt, Shamir Hassan, Amy Armstrong, Luis Rivera, Gabe Munoz, Cameron Lane, Hamza Bebejana, Michael Maitland, Adam Collins, Susanna Coleman, Ian Hunt, John Diego, Jess Card, Mark Weiss, Brianna Webb, John Buchan, Denise Sugita, Colin Hawthorne, Brian Weisbecker, Josh Malara, Eric Gonzalez, Matthew Alcon, and Tiffany Payne. Thank you all so much for carrying the fire with me, and I'll see you next time.